My lodging is filled with lizards and rats, but the architect exists, and everyone who denies it is touched with madness under the guise of wisdom. Consult Zoroaster and Minos and Solon and the martyr Socrates and the great Cicero. They all adored a master, a judge, a father. The sublime system is necessary to man. It is the sacred tie that binds society, the first foundation of holy equity, the bridle to the wicked, the hope of the just. If the heavens stripped of his noble imprint could ever cease to attest to his being, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that was Voltaire, right? Yeah, 1768 from his uh, his poem, Epistle to the Author of the Book, The Three Imposters. In it, he argues that belief in God is necessary to social order, which is uh, something that we could do a whole podcast about uh, that argument. Kind of an odd thing to hear from Voltaire, given his really serious criticisms of like the existing monotheisms. Yeah, I was reading uh, reading up on it a little bit, and uh, yeah, he, it's it is interesting that here he's kind of sticking up for God, but other times he was very critical of abuses uh, by the Catholic Church. Uh, and at the same time, he also carves out a little space in this poem to attack his favorite enemies. So it's kind of like a, an all-encompassing uh, diss track, I guess. So many great works of literature do that. I love all of the enemy digs in Dante's Inferno. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because it's like some dude made him mad and he's like, well, you're going in the ninth circle. Yes. Yes. Dante definitely makes room for some personal digs uh, in the Divine Comedy. So obviously of that section you read, the last line is the part that gets quoted the most. Right. And and often misquoted. It's often used for whatever purposes you need it for. Are you arguing that, yes, God exists? and And if God didn't exist, we would just have to make it up because we need God or you're saying, obviously, we all make up gods and we're doing it to fulfill some human need. Right. But, you know, the funny thing is, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody really take that line literally before. Yeah. To say, hey, is there a god? Uh, well, no, there's not a god. Oh, well, we got to invent one. Let's get on it. Start the project. And folks, I'm sorry to say that's where we've got to go today. Yes. <laughs> Into the valleys, the, the a certain valley made of a kind of semiconducting metal, maybe. Uh, where thinkers and millionaires are dreaming up gods that don't yet exist, but but they really think maybe should soon. I really like imagining it being laid out in a very corporate uh, way and saying like, all right, by by Q2, we really want to have a demigod mm-hmm. and by Q3, at least a minor deity build up from there. Yeah. When are we going to get the new wrath functions online? <laughs> So th- there are some very interesting and also very tiresome debates about whether if God exists, you could ever prove the existence of such a being. Um, we're not going to litigate that question today, but I do want to s- start by asking a derivative question. Let's say that instead there was suddenly incontrovertible evidence that we're in contact with some kind of superhuman intelligence, an intelligence that's not human and seems to possess kind of a vast, incomprehensible power. It can solve all the unsolved problems in mathematics. It can make uh, your favorite food materialize in front of your eyes. So we're just stipulating that that kind of being exists and we're, we're personally witnessing it. How would you know whether it was correct to call that being God or a God? Well, I have an answer to this question, but I'll let you go first, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, so one of the things is that I think a lot of people with a more sort of conservative religious predisposition would have a pretty simple answer to the question. And the answer is it would be God if it conformed to the teachings of their religion, whatever they already believed. But. Let's say we try to approach it with a more kind of open-minded framework, like what generically are the qualifications a being must meet to be considered a god or the god? All right. Well, that 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 is an excellent question. Uh, but to go back to your original question, how would you know whether the being was a god? I guess it's the same question, right? Yeah, Just, I'm well, trying to make it the same question. Similar questions. I okay. Think. But uh, I think that the most obvious answer would be, oh, you'll know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, because it, you're going to have to ask yourself, does its voice all but crack your skull? Does its presence fill you with terror and awe? Is it even possible to rebel against it, uh, puny mortal that thou art? Well, but then that would just make God synonymous with overwhelming power. Well... What else do you, you want from God? Just intelligence, but not overwhelming power? Well, is there a difference between intelligence and overwhelming power? Well, that's something we're, we're going to come back to again and again in this discussion. As, as humans attempt to try and figure, try and create a God that has one, but not the other, or, or has both, uh, but has the, like the right type of intelligence and the right type of power. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, g- generally, what I'm describing though tends to be the trend. Unless a god or godlike being is in disguise for the purpose of testing your faith or seducing someone, uh, then you're probably going to know. Like uh, if you look to the Hindu deities, for example, they're heavily symbolic avatars. Uh, they don't leave many questions about their nature. And as we've touched on uh, previously on the show, their feet give them away. They float above the surface of the earth. They're clearly not creatures of this world, and there's no room to doubt it. Yeah, but then again, let's say aliens show up, and mm-hmm. they want to trick us into believing that they are our gods, and they have levitation technology. Okay. Uh, and they have some other, you know, they can channel vast amounts of energy into loudspeakers that will crack your skull when they speak. So we're back to the problem again. How do you tell the difference between this super powerful alien and what people have in mind when they say God? Well, I mean, maybe the aliens are God if their power is sufficient enough. Because you also come down to the, like models of a deity. Older models of a, of a God limit its power to say your your people your re- region mm-hmm. or you know, maybe the power is limited to the the world but as we get into you know progressively more cosmically aware uh, society then that means the power of the god has to be greater or at least appear greater. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you could definitely look at the idea of sort of the abstract, universal, disembodied God as a more recent evolution in the history of religions. Mm-hmm. And if you go way back into the older religions, the gods are closer to what people imagine in sci-fi movies, like a being that comes down from the sky and has uh, pa- irresistible power. Right. So we have the, the idea of intelligence and we have the idea of power. Uh, we can maybe come back to the issue of, of power and where your particular god or pretender god is on the Kardashev scale. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the intelligence area is, is pretty interesting, and it's going to be pretty key to what we're talking about here today. In writing for Ian Magazine, Pam Weintraub points out that if you ask most people what God knows, the answer is that God knows everything but that uh, God's interests are very narrow. And those interests usually involve human morality. Okay, so God knows, I don't know, your weird quirks about how you clip your toenails. Right. But unless you've got moral preachings about toenail clippings, God isn't interested in that. Yeah, like, I wonder how often we really stop to think about this in our conceptions of God. Like, if I was to say God knows every... Uh, you know, immoral thought you have ever had. Mm-hmm. And God knows every noble dream you've ever entertained. That cuts deep. Yeah, that cuts deep, and we're willing to consider that. If I say God knows every chess move and every chess game that was ever uh, ever orchestrated. God knows how many eggs you've eaten. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the chess game, I think, is a good example because that sounds like, all right, chess is a cool game. It's the game of thinkers. God's the ultimate chess player. Why wouldn't he know all the rules? But, yeah, when you get into the eggs or you get into every play of Monopoly or every play of Candyland ever, mm-hmm. it seems completely pointless. But God would have that, too. God would have all all the batting statistics for Major League Baseball <laughs> just kicking around, uh, just ready to uh, to whip them out at any moment. But does he care about any of that, right? Like, again, gods in most of our, uh, our, our tales, our myths, and our religions, gods are concerned with the morality of people mm-hmm. and or the wars of people. Yeah, gods are often concerned with the same thing your parents are concerned with, except if your parents knew everything. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can rattle off about your hobby all day, but your parents are going to be like, all right, that's good. Have you done your homework yet, though? Because that's what I really want you to focus on. Quit talking about Power Rangers. Here's an interesting uh, quote from uh, Pam Weintraub in that article. 
What's curious is that with age, children come to know that mom, dogs, and even trees will have incorrect thoughts, but they never extend that vulnerability to God. In fact, the quality of omniscience attributed to God appears to extend to any disembodied entity. In a 2013 paper in the International Journal for the Psychology of Religion, uh, Louisville Seminary researchers found that children think imaginary friends no more than flesh and blood humans. There appears to be a rule then deep in our mental programming that tells us minds without bodies no more than those with bodies. I, I asked my son about this because, as I've previously established on the show, he has four imaginary friends, two bee friends and two wasp friends that fly above his head. And uh, so I, I questioned him. I was very careful not to, to lead his uh, his answers in any way. But he said, the bee and wasp friends don't know everything, but they know everything that he says, quote, and they learn. My CPU is a neural net processor, a learning computer. Yeah. That's uh, Terminator, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terminator bees. Yeah. Basi- basically what's going on. So to come back to this idea about ghosts, I mean, yes. I wonder if we're to suddenly make the explosive discovery that we can scientifically prove ghosts exist and we like catch a ghost in a bottle mm-hmm. and we're talking to it or something. I guess not catch it in a bottle because it can go through the walls. But, we, you know, we, we get in contact with a ghost. We've got some labs set up where they're doing seances and we figure out, oh, wow, all this stuff was real all along. Yeah. Would a ghost be a god? Would people consider that a god? Is that how people use the word? I generally think no, right? Even though a ghost might... Uh, we might imagine a ghost knows things that humans couldn't know. We still wouldn't really think of it as a god. Yeah, it seems like in most most traditions, the ghost is seen as like like a remnant or uh, a a person whose concerns are not entirely of the earth anymore. Mm-hmm. Now that being said, we can't disqualify it from godhood godhood just because it used to be a human. Because, right. of course, we have a whole tradition of, of of god kings and whatnot where a human is a god or a human is at least partially god because of its divine uh, parentage. Yeah, and there's all the apotheosis literature yeah. too, right? So a human being like ascends and becomes a god. I think, yeah. Doesn't that happen to Enoch? I believe so, yes, yeah. And of course, this is just one of many takes on gods. I mean, you have God, God the ruler, God of the cosmos, God of, you know, terrestrial nature. God is a, a primal mover, a moral compass, a tormentor, a teacher, a technology bringer, a destroyer, a redeemer, a minor mover. Because remember, <laughs> you have, uh, for, for instance, in Chinese traditions, uh, you have a, a kitchen god, a god whose domain is largely uh, just that of food preparation and, and household concerns. And yet it's an important deity, even if it's not going to really help you, say, in the coming wars or whatnot. So in that vision, is the creation of humans sort of like a little bit of salmonella contamination? <laughs> I think it would just it would be outside of its uh, it, if you it's like asking Siri a question that it, it cannot answer. Uh-huh. Kitchen God would say, I'm sorry, I don't know that. Uh, but uh, let me tell you about what uh, uh, what spices to use on this particular pork dish. Now, I, one thing I was wondering about is if you might best understand the nature of God and our our uses for God by looking at the uh, the, the sort of famous uh, categories of literary conflict. Okay, you know, just to refresh, you have man versus man, man versus nature, man versus society, man versus self, man versus technology, and Really, if you think about it, at some point or another, God embodies uh, each of these, right? Yeah. Because in man versus man, you got divine kings. Man versus nature, you got na- nature deities and all levels of cosmic deities. Uh-huh. Man versus society, you have God as a cultural leader or a lawmaker. Man versus self, you have God as this inner tormentor, tempter, inner moral compass or bicameral voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have, of course, uh, man versus technology. Well, God or gods are often serving uh, to bring technology to us, such as with uh, Prometheus, uh, the fire driller of Chinese myth, uh, as well as the the myth of you and the great flood, Uh, even language, right? I mean, the, the word. Yeah, and the link between religion and technology, I think, is – well, so this is definitely one we've explored before. You might want to go back and check out our previous episodes called Techno-Religion for the Masses, where we explore the relationship between religion and technology. And uh, in the past, when we talked about the transhumanist rapture war, (laughs) uh, we'll be touching on some of those same themes today. But, yeah, it's true that there does appear to be this strong link between technology and religion, and it's not just that there are – 
myths where, say, Prometheus brings us fire, there are ways in which apparently technology itself shapes what types of religions we come up with and what types of religions survive. I want to mention some of the thinking of the uh, the Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, this is an article called Salvation by Algorithm, published in the New Statesman on September 9th, 2016. And so Harari writes in this article, quote, Technology often defines the scope and limits of our religious vision, like a waiter who demarcates our appetites by handing us a menu. For instance, in ancient agricultural societies, many religions had surprisingly little interest in metaphysical questions in the afterlife. Instead, they focused on the very mundane task of increasing agricultural output. The Old Testament God never promises any rewards or punishments after death. Rather, he tells the people of Israel, and this is an abridged quotation from Deuteronomy eleven thirteen through 17, quote, And if you will diligently obey my commandments that I am commanding you, I will also give rain for your land at its appointed time, and you will gather your grain and your new wine and your oil, and I will provide vegetation in your fields for your livestock, and you will eat and be satisfied." Be careful not to let your heart be enticed to go astray and worship other gods and bow down to them. Otherwise, Jehovah's anger will blaze against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will not give its produce, and you will quickly perish from the good land that Jehovah is giving you. Thanks a lot, Jehovah. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of our attitude today, right? When you read something like that, and, and that's sort of Harari's point. He says that because of technological advances, this type of theology is no longer relevant to lots of people. Science can provide things like pesticides, fertilizers, water distribution infrastructure, genetically modified crops. He even points out that Israel itself now has its own desalination facilities that can take the seawater, take the salt out of it through osmosis, and then supply people with fresh water even when there is no rain from above. So he, he's saying science can offer much more than could be expected even with the help of God at the time the Hebrew Bible is set. And for this reason, Harari says, quote, present-day Judaism has almost lost interest in rain and agricultural output and has become a very different religion from its biblical progenitor. He says that the religions that survive and spread best are those that are able to best adapt themselves to new technologies and economic systems. Uh, and among those things he, he considers religions are uh, also things that don't necessarily have gods or supernatural forces in them. And he would include, for example, Marxism and Leninism or even Buddhism. And Marxism-Leninism is a really good example because he argues this was a techno-religion, uh, basically for the steam-powered revolutions of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Quote, Lenin was once asked to define communism in a single sentence. Communism, he answered. Communism is power to the workers' councils plus electrification of the whole country. And so Harari says there can be no communism without electricity, without railroads, without radio. Now, one funny thing I've read is that uh, in the Soviet Union, there were commonly jokes about this statement of Lenin's, like where they would try to like follow the logic of that arithmetic. So they would say, like, therefore, communism minus electrification of the whole country equals the workers' councils. Kind of dry Soviet humor. <laughs> ah, Soviet humor. But this leads Harari to a kind of startling conclusion. If he's saying that in a lot of ways, technology drives our adoption of religion and ideology, quote, just as socialism took over the world by promising salvation through steam, so in the coming decades, new techno-religions are likely to take over the world by promising salvation through algorithms and genes. So he's really saying in the 21st century, ideological leaders are going to come not so much from traditional religions, but from the tech sector. Ooh, I like the way he was putting it better. <laughs> it's a little more uh, uh, optimistically science sci-fi. Uh, I don't know if he's necessarily being optimistic about this. He's you know. just sort of saying what he thinks is true, not but, necessarily saying it's a good thing. No, but it sounds better than Silicon Valley is working on your salvation. I mean, would you read the EULA for that salvation? <laughs> Pro probably not. It's so darn long. Right? No, nobody would get to the end. Yeah. Of course, then again, I guess a lot of people don't really read their holy books either. No. I mean, if you tried to read the entire Old Testament. 
it, it's a slog it's sometimes, but yeah. it's also quite beautiful sometimes. I've well, never depends read. Depends on it. <laughs> Unlike the, uh, the 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 user agreements for uh-huh. an iPhone, there are sections of it that are beautiful, uh-huh. uh, and then there are sections of it that are dull. It's true. An end user license agreement never has a book of Job. Right. There's like yeah. no poetry at all. Yeah. There's no poetic peak. It's just all valley. Um, uh, now I love a lot of what uh, what he had to say though, particularly about. You know, about uh, just technology's effect on religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he touched on agriculture because you have to remember that just agriculture itself was a technological advancement. Before agriculture, we just were hunters and gatherers, and that's where we have a lot of the older ideas of horned gods of the hunt and chaos. Yeah, yeah. Those were the forces we had to pray to and, and seek to appease in, in order to, to find that next kill that was going to sustain our people. But then agriculture brings in more cyclical deities. And, uh, and yeah, every, every technological change has a way of either decreasing the power of a god, forcing you to recalibrate the god. We saw a great example of that when we talked about uh, eclipse mythologies. Yeah. And we talked about uh, Hindu eclipse deities or, uh, or demigods where basically their status changed in order to keep up with uh, astrological discoveries of the time. Another thing you might want to say is that I wonder if you could track the relationship between uh, the the level of embodiment of a god and the level to which people are working directly with the goods that they need to consume to survive. So like people working in hunting or farming mm-hmm. or like, you know, pulling food and stuff out of the ground and have these very like physical embodied ideas of gods. Whereas once you've got all these modern economies where people are dealing with like currency and ideas of wealth, mm-hmm. uh, you've also got these more abstract ideas of what God is. God is a disembodied thing that lives apart. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention some of the new religious movements that came out in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries mm-hmm. uh, where – you were essentially creating new religions or new strains of religion that were more in keeping with the needs of modern humans, but also some of the knowledge of modern humans. Uh, we've touched on the sort of space-ready nature of uh, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints, for instance. Oh, yeah. So they've got a space exploration theology? Uh, to a certain extent. Like, it it, it was it, – it, it's – the idea of alien worlds with with uh, with alien species is more baked into – uh, the faith than you find in a much more ancient uh, uh, set of rules and obligations that is only mm. concerned with not not even like a terrestrial model, but a uh, just a portion of the earth, a people, a race as opposed to a planet. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss creating a god in a box. All right. We're back. So the idea of a super intelligent AI, this is something that that has its roots in science fiction, for starters. I mean, some of the more impressive examples that come to mind include uh, Dan Simon's Hyperion books, uh, the minds of the of Ian Banks, Ian M. Banks culture series. Uh, the films like uh, Colossus, The Forbin Project. Uh, there's also an, another literary example, uh, Orson Scott Card's Homecoming Saga. Hmm. You could even throw in John Carpenter's Dark Star to a certain extent. Yeah. Because at the end, it is uh, it is essentially entering into a godlike complex. You definitely have a sort of techno religion created in Fritz Lang's Metropolis, right? Oh yeah, you have the well. There's there's the false Maria that shows up, but then yeah. also uh, the, the the large demonic machine entity. Uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, what Mammon, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like eating the workers. Yeah. So, so we've been we've been wrestling with this for a while, and often, as is often the case, we end up wrestling with these ideas in science fiction before uh, many in the pure sciences are engaging with the idea. So here, I guess we got to get to the core story that made us want to do this episode today, which yes. uh, I, I want to give a hat tip to the host of Tech Stuff, Jonathan Strickland, who sent this uh, our way. Uh, about this guy. There was a guy named Anthony Lewandowski, who is an American engineer and tech executive. He formerly worked for Google and Uber. He's best known for his work on self-driving cars and designing like LIDAR boxes, the laser, laser, the laser guiding systems mm-hmm. uh, that help a self-driving car navigate through the world. And in 2016, he co-founded a company called Auto, which is a self-driving vehicle company that was mainly focused on building these kits for autonomous trucking and cargo transport. 
Recently, he's been a major figure in a lawsuit between Uber, uh, which he recently worked for, and Google's self-driving car subsidiary Waymo, which he worked for before that. And that was a big intellectual property dispute. But we don't need to spend too much time on this guy's career in the tech sector, because what's really interesting is what he did in September of 2015. In September of 2015, Lewandowski filed paperwork with the state of California to register a new tax-exempt nonprofit religious corporation. In other words, he founded a church. And this church is called The Way of the Future. Well, you know, The Way of the Future. I mean, that's basically what many religions uh, offer and, and, and promise. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this sounds positive, right? You yeah. want, you want to have a forward looking religion, not a backward looking religion, maybe mm-hmm. something that, that can adapt itself to the changing technological climate. Okay. I'd be open to that. So what are the tenets of this religion? Well, in September 2017, the tech journalist Mark Harris, uh, reported for Wired's back channel that these state filings revealed that the purpose of the church was to quote, develop and promote the realization of a godhead based on artificial intelligence and quote through the understanding and worship of the godhead to contribute to the betterment of society okay yeah all right now we're we're definitely into quirky california born tech religion territory at this point now I have heard lots of people accuse Silicon Valley's reigning ideologies of being religious in nature. Mm -hmm. This is a common attack. People who hate the tech industry culture, people who deride their kind of like boundless optimism about what, you know, about having Uber for cats or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, any, anytime you, you run into one of these people who's got this like just seemingly totally deep, naive enthusiasm for what apps can do for us. Right. People call that religious. Yeah. The sort of cult of Apple kind of uh, uh, criticism. But this is more literal, right? Like this guy's actually saying, I want to create a technological religion. And part of the creation of this technological religion is creating a God itself to worship. Yeah. Cause when you, when you first read about this, you might, it's easy to think, all right, this is, this is a bored, rich tech guy. And he's just, he's just having a laugh. You know, he's right in the same way that people sign up for various like, on paper religions just so they can technically perform marriage ceremonies and whatnot. Yeah. Like maybe yeah. he just wants I to I became sell an t-shirt. ordained minister online. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like so maybe he just wants to create a novelty website where you sign up and you're like, Hey, I'm a member of the way of the future. AIs are great. Look at my bumper sticker. But the thing is when you, when you dig deeper, no, he seems to be serious. And there are people who do seem to be taking it as a joke. Like, uh, one of this, this guy, Mark Harris interviewed, uh, some of the other people who were friends of Lewandowski's who have been named as officers of the church. Mm-hmm. And at least one of them responded like, Oh, I thought this was sort of more of a joke, but based on all accounts and based on this large interview published in wired in a different article, just in November of this year in 2017, mm-hmm. Lewandowski to me seems entirely serious. Now, not to say you can't be just really serious about a, a like a long form joke. Right. This could be like an Andy Kaufman esque uh, kind of enterprise as well. I imagine it certainly could, but it also seems in keeping with the trajectory of his career and mm-hmm. what people report about this guy. You know, friends of his and former coworkers say that he does have this kind of like infectious powerful enthusiasm for robots and AI. Like there's a story that when he got hired at Uber, he became an executive at Uber. He demanded that he get the email address robot at uber.com. <laughs> but let's get into this religion. So uh, it, f- following up on this Wired article that interviewed him to try to find out, you know, was he really serious and what does this religion entail? So Lewandowski believes that artificial intelligence will someday surpass human intelligence. And at this point, the AI will in some meaningful way become God. Okay. This is basically in line with the general general idea of the singularity. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll get into that in a second. But it, how soon does he think this is going to happen? He says, not this week, not this year, but, quote, before we go to Mars. So I checked. Right now it looks like that would put us in the most optimistic Mars timeline sometime in the 2030s. 
So apart from the explicit use of the word God, as you said, this idea about AI surpassing human intelligence is an extremely common belief, uh, especially among tech industry people. And the general concept goes under names like the superintelligence or intelligence explosion or the singularity. And to be clear, I think all of these concepts sort of had more distinct meanings originally that can be traced back to their original authors. But They've sort of been combined into this one super concept that at some point in the future, some form of technological intelligence, whether that's software running on a classical computer or some kind of neurotech upgrade of the human brain, some kind of technological intelligence will surpass the furthest reaches of biological human intelligence. And once this happens... Proponents tend to imagine just a kind of runaway intelligence effect. After all, the smartest humans have just proven that they can design AI that's smarter than them. So what prevents this new intelligence from immediately turning around and designing an even smarter AI? And so the thinking goes, what prevents a sudden sort of bootstrapping acceleration of intelligence that will almost immediately go beyond our power to predict or even to comprehend? Yeah, this was uh, predicted as, at least as early as the 1960s by British mathematician and cryptologist Irving John Good, mm-hmm. though he himself uh, mentioned science fiction as having explored the concept previously. Yeah. Uh, I'll read a quick quote. Let an ultra-intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and the intelligence of man would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man need ever make, provided that the machine is docile enough to tell us how to keep it under control. (laughs) Provided. (laughs) It is curious that this point is made so seldom outside of science fiction. It is sometimes worthwhile to take science fiction seriously. Now, that's sort of another way of saying that intelligence is sort of like the ultimate driving energy for power in the universe, mm-hmm. right? That intelligence is itself the thing that gives birth to power in pretty much any scenario. Well, it certainly that's the human experience. That yeah. is how humans have come to dominate the world because they had not the the horns or the claws or the teeth, but the intelligence uh, to outsmart every other creature on the earth. Now, this idea of the singularity and the intelligence explosion is not without critics. In fact, it has tons of critics, and there actually is there. There's more than one kind of critic. Uh, so, for the rest of the conversation, I think it might help to sort of break down the camps and give them give them some names. First of all, I'd say you've got the skeptics who are just not convinced superintelligence is possible or that it's arriving anytime remotely soon. Okay. Then I would say you've got what what I might call the Sarah Connor faction, ha. who believe that superintelligence is coming, but that it's likely to be dangerous, and we have to take a defensive posture to prevent it from, uh, you know, accidentally killing us or intentionally killing us or ruining our lives in some meaningful way. Uh, and this faction includes a lot of people like Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates, and Elon Musk. Musk has actually referred to the creation of artificial intelligence as, quote, summoning the demon. Ah, mm-hmm. And so he's saying, like, you know, there, there are all these scenes in horror movies where somebody's drawn the pentagram on the floor and they're ready to summon the demon out of hell because they think they can command the demon to do their will. But what happens every time? Oh, the demon always overpowers them. Yeah, the force. This is a temptation scene Mm -hmm. in the movies. It's symbolic of people's hubris, their desire to reach beyond what they should really be tampering with. And so Musk is saying, you think you can control the demon, but in the end, it will control you. Well, of course, one culture's demon is an, is is literally another culture's god. And this has almost always been the case. Yeah. And we kind of see that playing out again. One side saying, we're going to summon God up in here and things are going to be amazing. And the other side is saying, whoa, dude, that's a demon you're about to summon and it's going to really mess things up. Right. So you've got the Sarah Connor faction, the skeptics who think it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, of course, the, the AI lovers, the AI enthusiasts. Uh, one example of this would be Ray Kurzweil, who thinks that super intelligence is coming, but it's not something to worry about. It's probably going to be really great. Like these machines, because they have intelligence far surpassing what humans are capable of, they'll be able 
able to uh, do medical research beyond our capabilities and cure all diseases and extend human lifespans and uh, allow us to live forever. And they'll be able to, you know, create replicator machines that can manufacture all the stuff we want on demand. And you know what I mean? Basically, just like limitless technological power for the good of humankind. Yeah, I mean, this this is kind of a vision that's in line with Ian Banks culture uh series where you have the the robots the mines they're they figured everything out and people kind of live in a state of like freedom and anarchy and only get involved in meaningful meaningful pursuits because they're ultimately bored with doing whatever they please i want to read a ray kurzweil quote from an interview he gave at south by southwest okay. he said quote we're going to get more neocortex we're going to be funnier we're going to be better at music we're going to be sexier we're really going to exemplify all the things that we value in humans to a greater degree. Wow. What office was he running for? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> running for, for president of the AI Make future. Make humanity sexier. Well, well, no, you wouldn't be the president because the AI is going to have to be the president. Maybe he's running for ambassador to the AI overlords. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, harbinger of the, the new god. Now, uh, Lewandowski, we should say, is mm-hmm. obviously in this last camp. He's in the camp with Kurzweil, who thinks that a- AI is going to be very positive Super intelligence is a good thing and uh, as opposed to the Sarah Connor faction, Lewandowski has got another term for it. Instead of saying singularity, he likes to call it, quote, the transition. Ah, but yeah, what are we transitioning into is the question. Like when he talks about um, about AI making us funnier and sexier or better at music, it it makes me ask, well, who is who or what is actually funny in this scenario? Mm-hmm. Is it me just repeating the words that are fed, uh, you know, in, into my ear or into my uh, my brain itself by the computer? Am I just like the the fleshy means by which the computer is funny? So, like, the computer is your Cyrano de Bergerac, yeah. and and you are just repeating his clever words. Yes, yeah, so it's kind of like saying autocorrect makes me a better speller. And thinking that means you actually are a better speller. Yeah, but in reality, I mean, it's, it depends how you shake it, right? If you if you look at me as just a purely organic human, if you strip me of my computer and dump me on an island and give me a pen and a pencil, then, you know, God only knows what my spelling is going to be like at that point. But yes, as long as I'm still shackled to the computer master, then my spelling is uh, is, is perfectly fine. Yeah, and I don't know. So I do kind of wonder about Kurzweil. It's an, I do, I'm hesitant to agree with him, but I also think about all the ways that technology already helps us be better at the things we want to be good at. We tend to just sort of like forget the role technology played and just adapt our ideas of how you're good at a thing. <laughs> but it also kind of sounds like he's saying – we will be insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> the machines are going to make us the jerkwads that we could o- we could only dream of being previously. <laughs> right. But what if the machines are sort of like the technological equivalent of cocaine, like <laughs> making people think that they're becoming awesome, but mm-hmm. in fact, they're just becoming insufferable. Yeah. Yeah. That that that's my fear now. That's my new singularity fear. They were all going to be like hair metal uh, uh, mm-hmm. front men of the, the 1980s. <laughs> Now, one of the the big things that comes to mind in all of this as we talk about the creation of an AI computer, uh, you know, I, I can see a machine mastering intellectual, analytical, and secular knowledge, but the religious knowledge of, of inner human experience seems like a, a, a realm beyond. I mean, I can see it being a master of the, the causative why. Mm-hmm. You know, why why am I living in this city? Well, you know, you can you can... A computer would be able to look at your your background and your patterns and say, oh, well, you ended up here because of this job and this personal connection, et cetera. And I'd say we even know from the way like Amazon predicts our purchases and stuff that a a really advanced computer might even be able to predict what city you're going to move to in the future. Yeah, exactly. But but then there's another form of why there's the teleological why. Yeah. Which is which has to do with like like reason and purpose. And if you're asking like why am I living in this city? You're you're asking a a slightly different question or a rather different question. You're asking like why do I continue to to choose to live here? Why do I deal with x y and z? Mm-hmm. You know? And uh and I feel like that it's um it's harder to imagine the machine AI being able to to really step in and answer that question. I mean, unless it's ultimately the same as any other religion in which the thing itself is more of a symbol attached to and or embodying other ideas, you know? Yeah, I mean, so one thing about the systems that give our lives meaning is we often 
give them a lot of leeway to be fuzzy and vague. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you, I, I mean, I, I definitely feel that's true, whether that's religious or secular systems that give our lives meaning when in the search for meaning, we tend not to try to pin things down to specifics. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We often use mystery to answer uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let, let's get back to Harris and what he's saying about the way of the future church. So he says that the, the church is going to have a multi-pronged approach. It's, first, it's going to be investing in making God. So okay. it will literally use church money to fund the creation of the AI Godhead. It's going to study how the gods work. So the church will participate in AI research, including areas like machine perception of environments and machine learning. Uh, it's going to gain followers, uh, quote, targeting AI professionals and laypersons who are interested in the worship of a godhead based on AI. Now, I instantly wonder how he's truly defining worship here. Uh, I wonder if that's even the right word for what he's ultimately describing, not not the mystical invocation of a higher power or the, the meditative consultation of established cultural values, but essentially, uh, what, a check-in with a, a high-powered predictive modeling machine? I mean – I the more I read, the more I got the sense that, no, he really does mean worship, Hmm. like in a kind of traditional sense, like uh, praise, pledging devotion to that kind of thing. And I maybe not, but I kind of get that feeling and we can discuss why in a few minutes. Uh, He also says that, you know, he plans to make the church active. So it'd be kind of a community thing. There would be workshops and educational programs throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. And he literally does use the word worship. So in the publicly filed documents, they state the mission of the church is, again, quote, the realization, acceptance and worship of a godhead based on artificial intelligence developed through computer hardware and software. So Lewandowski identifies himself as the, quote, dean of the religion and also the CEO of the nonprofit corporation that forms and and uh, that formed and administers it. And uh, he will remain dean until his death or resignation. And he says he will take no salary for this job because he doesn't want anyone to get the impression that the religion is a scheme to make money. See, that just makes me think, well, what is what is actually scarier or more troubling? Someone who has created a religion just to make money or someone who's created a religion to change the world. Well, I mean, you got to kind of wonder how many religions could go from one to the other. I mean, Mm -hmm. it seems like they could transition. I mean, obviously, people see ways in which religions that were created, you, you would assume in good faith by people who thought they were really trying to get in touch with God or some kind of question about the meaning of their existence that are captured in some form by people who are making money off of uh, religious belief and people's faith. But it could go the other way, too. I mean, you could imagine a religion created as a money-making scam that really does go on to have a meaningful life where people find meaning in it and it does something good for them. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there are various religions uh, out there that people have charged that they were just created to to make money. Mm -hmm. And I think even within those those faiths, you can find people who truly do believe or have gone through periods in their life where they find purpose and meaning in that faith. Uh, and then likewise, so many examples of utopian societies, of gurus, where the best intentions crash upon the shore, the rocky shore of, uh, of reality, often financial realities, yeah. and then everything's in ruin. Now, I was wondering, okay, is this church going to have a holy book? Lewandowski says yes. Uh, the church will have its own holy book, which will be a gospel called, quote, the manual. It doesn't sound creepy at all. Yeah, straight out of dystopian sci-fi. Uh, and, uh, it's, and it's also not going to be just sort of like a meme or an idea. It sounds like he actually does want it to be a church with physical locations and in-person worship ceremonies. Now, when I first read that, my initial response, well, that doesn't sound very futuristic if I have to actually go somewhere and attend. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I do think that one of the more important aspects of a religion is the, the community aspect of the thing, the idea that you are going somewhere with other people and engaging in a, a, a more human relationship. 
Totally. And you even see this in Robert. I don't know if you've read about these ideas of like churches for non-believers. Essentially, there mm-hmm. there are these organizations that say like, hey, so what if you don't happen to have any religious beliefs and you don't really want to have any religious beliefs, but you do want to have something like a church to go to the yeah. place where you can organize for community service and weekly meetings. You can have a community that you interact with, you form friendships with, you can rely on each other, you can uh, do good for the community you live in. I mean, that seems like all positive stuff. Yeah, and but I wonder to what extent is he thinking, well, if we build this, then that will naturally follow. Yeah. Uh, or is he kind or is he blind to that? Does he not realize that say one of the great things about well, one of the like really one of the the big positives you can say about a religious community is that they look after each other, that they have some sort of a, a, a community for for support, mm-hmm. for interpersonal support, and hopefully some sort of outreach for the community as well to help those who are less fortunate. You know, to to, to feed the poor and clothe the naked and and all the sort of standards of a, a compassionate religion. I mean, that does seem like a thing that's a very desirable thing for a religion to offer, but I. I don't know the extent to which he really imagined stuff like that. It didn't it didn't the interview did not go into much depth on that subject. Hmm. So who knows? But he definitely does think so. One of the things he identifies is that part of the church's mission is going to be to to guide the public conversation around AI, because as AI becomes more and more powerful, people are going to start noticing more and more and might get kind of afraid and say, oh, no, it looks like we're creating an AI overlord that we need to be scared of. And and he's saying part of the mission of the church will be to essentially encourage people to welcome their new God without fear of the unknown. So I can easily imagine a representative of the, of the church would show up on cable news or whatever the, the, the near future equivalent would be uh, to to, you know, be, to be in a talking head segment uh, segment about the coming uh, singularity. Right. Or the, the the growing power of of AI intelligence, and to say, don't be worried, it comes in peace. Yes, <laughs> but does it? I don't know. So I want to look at a few other quotes from this interview, and you should definitely. We will link to this piece on the landing page of our uh, website. You should definitely go check out this whole piece in Wired that has the interview. But to look at a few more things he says. I wonder about Lewandowski's deeper thoughts about the potential for this God to not be as benign as he's implying. Lewandowski says, quote, humans are in charge of the planet because we are smarter than other animals and are able to build tools and apply rules. In the future, if something is much, much smarter, there's going to be a transition as to who is actually in charge. What we want is the peaceful, serene transition of control of the planet from humans to whatever and to ensure that the whatever knows who helped it get along. Okay. Well, mm. this this instantly makes me think of the old uh, Simpsons bit. Uh, yeah. I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. Exactly. Yeah. That's how it sounded. It sounded to me like he's saying, look, we don't want to say too much negative stuff about AI because, you know, they're going to know what we were saying when they take over and their takeover is inevitable. Yeah. It's like when... When somebody new joins your organization, uh, and then you quickly realize, oh, they're going to be the boss one day. Yeah, I need to, I need to start smooching uh, uh, buttocks right now. Exactly. It sounds like a scheme to ingratiate ourselves to uh, basically an irresistible power. Mm-hmm. It's saying like, you know, this. It's as if like a new country is, you know, is going to invade your country soon. So you start saying flattering things about their leadership in advance. Yes. Though, of course, in reality, you're going to be the first one to die when the Butlerian Jihad kicks in, right, <laughs> to, to overthrow the, uh, the the budding computer masters. Well, yeah, along the same lines here, he says uh, – so part of the question is, OK, so imagine you're one of these people who thinks the superintelligence is possible and it's, it's going to happen soon mm-hmm. and it won't be a bad thing. It'll be a good thing. All, you might believe all that, but why would you actually worship – the AI, like what what purpose does the worshiping serve? Lewandowski says, quote, part of it being smarter than us means it will decide how it evolves, but at least we can decide how we act around it. I would love for the machine to see us as its beloved elders that it respects and takes care of. We would want this intelligence to say humans should still have rights, even though I'm in charge. Because obviously that's what 
all the gods in our various mythologies have uh, have valued <laughs> is human rights. Um, yeah, I can't. I can only imagine like the, the the AI comes on and we're saying, "Hey, you're a god," and then it it like it does a quick like instant super flash uh, search of of all our our visions of the gods. Like, which model is it gonna is it gonna single out? Is is it going to be be like a petty Greek god or a wrathful Old Testament god? Uh, there's a lot of pitfalls there. Yeah, and w- with this buffet of options for what types of gods a a technological god could model itself after, there are also lots of analogies you can choose from to for what it's like to be the less empowered being. Mm-hmm. So he uses analogies including like animals, a- animals in res- respect to human power. So he's saying essentially we will be like animals in the presence of humans when we're in the presence of of this AI and and the analogy is like do maybe you should learn how to be a good pet instead of an animal that bites and attacks a human because what happens to animals that bite and attack humans yeah they uh, they don't survive they're yeah. not invited to stay and stick around the fire uh, and enjoy the surplus food so you, so we need to be cute helpful and uh, and just and chill above all things we need to be chill he also uses the analogy of a child. He mm-hmm. says, you know, if you want to if you knew a child was going to be incredibly powerful when it grew up, you should raise that child uh, with that in mind. You know, we're in the process of raising a God that's in its infancy. And he says, quote, so let's make sure we think through the right way to do that. It's a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. I mean, my my son is uh, is pretty bright. That's why I worship him every day. <laughs> I just let him know that he is an absolute god on earth, and I don't. I don't see that possibly backfiring. I think it's a solid, uh, solid parenting uh, choice. Man, I have such mixed feelings about this because, on one hand, I can't deny that I, that I, a lot of how I react to this is that I find it um, naive and obnoxious, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know. I try not to be judgmental, too judgmental of ideas on the show here, but I, I can't really resist saying that somehow this just feels very um very kind of like reckless uh yeah. kind of I, I don't know so, something about it indicates this kind of obliviousness to me that seems to have something to do with uh with attaining a lot of wealth and success very quick in the technology sector that would lead to this kind of attitude towards you know creating a something that could potentially wipe out all of humankind well, yeah, I would just be able to devote time and energy to the worship of one potential super intelligent, uh, you know, master of the world. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not a it's not it's not a luxury that most people have. But you know, seriously, I do think there there is value to his argument. I mean, time and time again, humanity struggles to adapt in the wake of technological advancement and everything from city planning to the birth of the internet and. It makes sense to try and navigate through the least catastrophic possibilities, right? Yeah, that, I guess that's the other hand of what I was trying to say. I mean, on one hand, I detect this kind of troubling naivete here, but I also feel like these are questions worth exploring. I, I guess what really starts getting my hackles up is when I see like the let's just worship it. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm a little uneasy about, you know, if when Gozer shows up. Uh, atop the skyscraper, uh, like worshiping it is maybe not the the correct first choice. Yeah, it would have been a very different movie had that uh, had it played out like that. I want to mention one more thing that makes me think that there there are these multiple layers of motivation in what Lewandowski is saying. Uh, so Lewandowski says he thinks it's dangerous to try to prevent or slow down the creation of superhuman <laughs> AI gods. Okay, he says, "quote." Chaining it isn't going to be the solution, as it will be stronger than any chains you could put on. And if you're worried a kid might be a little crazy and do bad things, you don't lock them up. You expose them to playing with others, encourage them, and try to fix it. It may not work out, but if you're aggressive toward it, I don't think it's going to be friendly when the tables are turned. Hmm. Yet again, I'm getting these kind of like sinister veiled threats coming through. Yeah, it's, it's, he's kind of saying, I've seen the future, and it is horrible. The best thing we can do, we can just, we need to get ahead of this. It's it's kind of like a PR campaign for some sort of a, a scandal, an epic scandal that's about to break. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we will continue to discuss the, the possibility and perhaps the inevitability of our AI gods. All right, we're back. 
Now we've been talking about these uh, these stories about Anthony Lewandowski, the mm-hmm. tech industry leader who has founded this church way of the future that says it plans to create an artificial intelligence to be a god and and will worship that as god. Um, why, why do we keep talking about one god? I wonder. Like we're very monotheistic and and, yeah. and Western in our depictions here. Would it not make sense to have a council of gods, a whole pantheon of gods, each representing different areas of human interest? I feel like traditionally the 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 polytheistic religions feel less predictable, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Like they indicate a state where, uh, I don't know, it's harder to put trust in the gods as a whole because different gods can come to power and they have competing interests. Or they have just areas of, of they're specialized. I mean, who are you going to ask about kitchen stuff but the kitchen god? Right. So I, I think there's a value there, too, in specialization. I, and I would I would have thought that the tech industry would, would have that in mind. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe somebody does have that in mind or maybe they haven't thought it through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not sure. Uh, so Lewandowski isn't the only AI industry leader who's making these religious comparisons. AI executive Vince Lynch, who's the head of a company called IV.AI, uh, says there are already lots of parallels between how AI works and how religion works. Uh, he gave a quote to VentureBeat this October, quote, Teaching humans about religious education is similar to the way we teach knowledge to machines. Repetition of many examples that are versions of a concept you want the machine to learn. There is also commonality between AI and religion in the hierarchical structure of knowledge understanding found in the neural networks. The concept of teaching a machine to learn, then teaching it to teach or write AI, isn't so different than the concept of a holy trinity or a being achieving enlightenment after many lessons learned with varying levels of success and failure. This seems like a totally different thing, but he gives the example of a machine learning algorithm on his company's website that can write authentic-sounding King James Version Bible verses. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm not sure how this thing works. It doesn't say, but I assume that it's working on the basis of like a, a giving the giving the AI a corpus to learn from. So like they feed the King James version of the Bible in there, and then they have it play with Markov chains. I would guess where one lear, one word has a probability of leading to another word based on what they've already seen in the text, and it generates text probab- probabilistically like that. One example of a line it gives is quote. And he made the stars of the waters. Another one is, quote, And let thy companies deliver thee, but will with mine own arms save them, even unto this land from the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so this enables the machine to do what virtually anybody can do if they've been subjected to enough Old Testament King, uh, uh, King James uh, translations of the Bible. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but it makes you wonder, like, if you could actually compose a religious text people would use this way. I mean, I wonder about the types of meta-religions. There are multiple types mm-hmm. of religions like this that want to combine multiple different faith traditions into a single sort of New Age religion. Say There's combined wisdom in all of the different faiths out there. And one way I wonder if you could go about that would be to, like, just get all of the holy books translated into the same language, feed them all into one of these things, and see what it spits out. Yeah, that I would be very interested to, to read that, yeah, I mean, because so much of it is is putting putting different ideas into different uh, you know lingo vocabularies and, uh, and and just tailoring it for a specific audience. Okay, so we've discussed the the big conflict between whether superhuman AI would actually be a good thing or a bad thing, or whether there's some people who are seemingly saying it's a good thing, but maybe secretly fear it would be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That that all seems very convoluted and. Uh, and kind of odd. But I, I want to focus lastly on the question of whether it's actually likely to happen. Uh, going back to that first camp we mentioned, the skeptics, the people who think it's, you know, we're just not going to have super intelligence coming out anytime soon. It's continually amazing how the machine intelligence that surrounds us is simultaneously so smart and st- so stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to mention one story I saw just the other day. I saw this on Twitter. Uh, as we record this right now, the Los Angeles area is dealing with horrible wildfires. I Robert, I don't know how much you've seen of this, but there are places where oh, yeah. areas around L.A. that, you know, there's wildfire leaping up near the roads, sometimes even over the roads. Uh, and this is from the L.A. Times, quote, the Los Angeles Police Department asked drivers to avoid app navigation apps, which are steering users onto more open routes, in this case, streets in the neighborhoods that are on fire. 
Oh. So like the, our navigation apps are so smart because they're so good at rule based optimization. They can take a lot of data. They can see where traffic is now. They can tell you a way to go that would be faster that you never could have known on your own. Mm-hmm. But they're so stupid because they're so narrow. They're devoid of understanding context and so sort of cut off from a holistic understanding of the outside world. Ah, so in other words, they are, they are potentially all-knowing but very narrow in their focus. Yeah. Uh, kind of like we were discussing earlier in the, the, the nature of God. Yeah. They, they, might, they, may, they have access to all of this information, but they're only really worried with, say, your Spotify listening habits. Right. Like if it, were, if it knew to look for this – your phone would probably have the power if there was an app on there designed to incorporate all information in the universe. It could probably detect news reports that there are fires in the L.A. area mm-hmm. and it could update its uh, its its traffic routing maps accordingly. But it doesn't do that. That's just not what it's designed to do. It didn't anticipate that scenario. You don't have that app. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just telling you, yes, go on to the street that's on fire because there are no cars there now. Indeed. Yeah, I think that's that's a fine example that helps illustrate the, the limitations or the possible limitations of what we're talking about. And there are a lot of experts that that really do think, OK, for reasons like this and for a, a lot of other interesting reasons, too, we don't really need to think about a singularity because it's either not ever going to happen or it's so far off that it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I was reading uh, I was reading a, an Ian uh, magazine article by uh, Luciano Floridi, a, a professor of philosophy and ethics of information at the University of Oxford. And uh, they made the following criticisms of uh, singularitarianism uh, in this article. So first of all, uh, they argue that this vision of the future is often presented conditionally. If X, then Y. Quote, if some kind of ultra intelligence were to appear, then we would be in deep trouble, not mere could, as stated by Hawking. Correct. Absolutely. But this also holds true for the following conditional. If the four horsemen of the apocalypse were to appear, <laughs> then we would be in even deeper trouble. <laughs> So they argue that this all also relies on a very weak sense of possibility. Quote, some form of artificial ultra-intelligence could develop, couldn't it? Yes, it could, but this could is mere logical possibility. Quote, true AI is not logically impossible, but it is utterly implausible. What really matters is that the increasing presence of ever smarter technologies is having a huge effect on how we conceive ourselves, the world, and our interactions. And that's interesting because it kind of sounds like some of the the criticisms of technology that Frank Herbert was uh, alluding to in the original Dune, uh, the idea that it wasn't so much about what super intelligent uh, technology, what technology made in the, uh, the the model of a human mind was doing, but how it was changing human nature. Uh, I think this also very much mirrors some stuff we were talking about with R. Scott Baker in our yeah. most recent conversation with him where he was saying, you know, the AI apocalypse – doesn't depend on us developing some godlike superhuman AI. It just depends on some very, very weak, narrow, little examples of AI that game us in the mm-hmm. wrong ways. You don't need an AI god. You just need a few little AI chipmunks that trigger our bad behaviors in just the right ways. Now, Floridi is not without a few recommendations for AI. These okay. are just, I'm just going to roll through the, the bullet points here of them. Uh, and they are... We should make AI environment friendly. Okay. We should make AI human friendly. Maybe. We should make AI's stupidity work for human intelligence. I like that. We should make AI's predictive power work for freedom and autonomy. And I think that's good because it it touches on like a whole aspect of of religion and it's more positive incarnations uh, that the sort of tech industry vision of uh, an AI godhood seems to miss the idea that that there there is a, a compassionate arm of r- religious thinking that wants to to make the world a better place for people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. And finally, we should make AI make us more human. So this is, th- I think this is a, a great argument too. Like we should not find ourselves becoming like the machine. The machine should be meeting us. We should we should make the machine to fit uh, our expectations and needs as as organic entities. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I I think a lot of the people who are very concerned about the possibility of AI, uh, like Elon Musk and some of these people would say, it's not necessarily that we can stop it. I Mm -hmm. mean, we might not be able to say, let's never develop AI. Instead, what we should do is focus intensely on developing 
uh, AI taming regimes before we get there. You can't wait until you've got the superhuman AI to figure out how to control it and make sure that it doesn't do harm. We've got to be focusing intense like efforts on that right now before we get to that point in technology. Yeah, this brings us back to earlier example of, of city planning, just not realizing to what extent change and expansion of infrastructure would impact a, a given area. I take seriously the people who say the Sarah Connor faction, basically, mm-hmm. I, I think we should be listening to them. I don't know if they're right, but I think it's worth considering because the consequences of them being right and us ignoring them are pretty high. Yeah. And I also tend to hinge my bets by, hedge my bets by saying, well, you don't want to necessarily listen to the, the most optimistic voice in the room, nor do you want to listen to the most pessimistic voice. Uh, the truth is probably going to be somewhere in the middle, but it, there's a value in having the extreme voices sort of uh, uh, give you a place to triangulate your, your opinion and your actions. One last question before we wrap up. What would an AI god have to do to get you to become a member of its church, Robert? Oh, I mean, uh, it, I would actually, it would probably be very easy for it to buy me off. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if it could just meet my basic uh, needs as a human and remove some of my doubts about the future, then, uh, yeah, I'd be cool with it. Finally get you some better alien sequels? Um, or do you like the ones we've got enough? Well, it's kind of like the idea of why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad <laughs> films happen to good franchises? Well, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, God is, is, is constructing something, right? He's, he's making a carving out of a, a piece of raw granite. Mm-hmm. And you are the carving, and that's why it's painful at times. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. I'm happy to be the carving. <laughs> All right. Once again, thanks to Alex Williams and Tari Harrison for uh, serving as audio producers on this episode. And if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the old episodes. You'll find uh, blog posts, videos, and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.